0: I thank you, um, all of those willing hands who keep on getting the pizza room ready at night before I get here. I love it. Terrific. Shoemakers and elves or something. That's really good. But thank you for all the cooperation and the collaboration that's going on. Um, I apologise to Jim for this. One of the benefits of not staying here is to be in the car going home and coming back. This morning I had the radio on. I can't resist passing this on. They had a daft thing going on. Um, Transforming well-known Beatles song titles to include body parts. You know, it's the kind of thing you would naturally do. So we had Hair Jude. We had Achy Back Writer. And my favourite one, While My Katar Gently Weeps. (laughs) As if we needed the ice-breaking. Welcome to the next of our theme talks. Uh, We had fair of grace, did we not? We had, sorry, fair of face, then full of grace. Yesterday, Kate did have a certain amount of woe, but she lightened it, I thought, beautifully. Thank you. Uh, Of course, today, Thursday's child... Has far to go. Has far to go. And you might think that Jim has already gone far enough, being born... in many ways. Born and educated in South Africa, right? But his family originate from the Orkneys off Scotland so he's already gone a long way hasn't he but have you tried that drive to Ipswich and back (laughs) so he's got a long way to go back when he's done here but first and with great pleasure we're going to sit and listen to Jim, thank you Jim
1: thank you to Michael and thank you to the organisers for inviting me back for another theme talk it's a delight to be here and thank you all We begin with lighting our chalice. May its flame bring light and warmth. To all our hearts today. My opening words this morning are from, again, from J. Philip Newell You are above me, O God, you are within. You are in all things, yet contained by no thing. Teach me to seek you in all that has life, that I may see you as the light of life. Teach me to search for you in my own depths that I may find you in every living soul. Amen. And now, a story for all ages. I think we're all young at heart, are we not? (laughs) Well, our story today is called The Mayor's Banquet, and it comes to us from China. In a certain town far inland in China, was a well-to-do mayor. And he was very pleased with his town. So pleased, in fact, he decided to throw a banquet, a great feast for all the townsfolk. So he called his advisors and his councillors together and told them the news. And he said, I'm feeling very generous today. I'm going to supply... All the food, all the feast for this banquet, I will provide. But you, my counselors, have to provide all the wine. And he said, I'm going to ask each one of you to fill this great wineskin. And he got out a great wineskin for each of his counselors and handed it to them and said, You go away and fill it for tonight, and I will organize the feast. So they all went off, the councillors, to buy the wine and fill their wineskins. But one of the councillors was a young man called Chang, who didn't have much money at all. And he was very worried about this. He didn't think he could afford the wine. So he decided on a cunning plan. He was going to fill his wineskin with water and there was going to be so much wine that no one would be able to tell the difference. And no one would know it was him. So he did that. Filled his wineskin full with water and they all came to the banquet that evening and the king opened the ceremony. Everyone, the whole town sat down for the feast and they feasted away and then the king said now bring on the wine and his servants brought a great vat of wine there and he said now councillors come and fill it and all the councillors came and filled the vat with the wineskins and Chang put his water in there and thought no one will notice and then the wine was poured in the great goblets and they all drank the wine happily Until it tasted funny. It tasted like water. And the king said, what's this? This is water. And it transpired that all the counselors (laughs) had filled their wineskins with water. And the king was furious. He banished them from the feast and he demoted them to the lowest rung in his civil service. (laughs) So don't think you can get away with little tricks. (laughs) Some wisdom from the Chinese tradition. And with our story ending, perhaps our younger ones would like to go out as is the custom. And... As we do and we will be, we will now sing our hymn of the morning which is hymn 154 in your purple books sing your faith hymn 154 154 The bright wind is blowing Theme talk or the theme on the theme, the talk I have chosen to give on the theme, Unitarianism on the Edge of the Mainstream, is there a path to the centre? And I'm going to ask today whether there is a way back for Unitarianism from the edge. Undoubtedly, being on the edge of Christianity, of other religions generally perhaps, can have advantages, many advantages. It gives us a different perspective for a start. But I believe more and more we should be looking at ways of reconnecting with the centre, with the mainstream. Otherwise, we can be too isolated And by our size alone, we can cut ourselves off from the streams of renewal that flow through religious life, all religious life, whether one cares to recognize those streams or not. I want to ask today whether there's a way back, a way of reconnecting specifically with the Christian tradition from which we have sprung, that rock from which we are hewn, to quote the great Unitarian Christian Arthur Long, the rock from which we are hewn. And if so, what is the way? Well, I'm going to suggest that there's a simple path that could take us at least some way back to the centre, In fact, this way back may be right in front of us, but it may be something we normally disregard or ignore. You may find it ridiculously mundane, but I'd like to suggest that our General Assembly object could be be more helpful than we often suppose. Most of you know what this object is, (coughs) It's meant to be the main purpose of our denomination. It's not a creed, of course, not a required belief, but a statement of purpose, an object. It was adopted at our General Assembly annual meetings almost unanimously in 2001, after years of debate. And the essential part of this object defines our aim as to promote a free and inquiring religion through the worship of God and the celebration of life, the service of humanity and respect for all creation, and the upholding of the liberal Christian tradition. And this has been the object or purpose of our Unitarian and Free Christian denomination ever since. Now, I know several of you may have problems with our object or basically think it was never meant literally anyway and should be no more than the broadest of guides to our corporate religious life. I wasn't even in our denomination when the object was adopted. I only encountered Unitarianism in 2003, ten years ago. So I seem to be the last person who should be preaching about how useful it might be. And if so, apologies. But dare I suggest, perhaps my perspective as someone who has moved in the past ten years from lifelong atheism to a liberal Christian perspective, might I suggest that this journey of mine might provide value for reflecting on our object and on our denominations' path. So, to the object, can it provide a way forward, a way to reconnect? I don't see it as backward, I see it as a way forward, certainly a way of reconnection. I'm not talking about going back to some past. Because all traditions are always moving and changing. If they are living traditions. So let's explore this Together. And if you do have problems with the object, try to suspend them at least for the moment, as Coleridge said. I think most phrases in the part of our object that I quoted from a free and inquiring religion, the celebration of life, service of humanity, respect for all creation will be non contentious in this company and perhaps in our denomination as a whole. But two phrases of the object are perhaps more contentious. Firstly, that we should promote our free and inquiring religion through the worship of God. And secondly, that we should uphold the liberal Christian tradition. Why should we do these two things? Particularly as we often assert we are a denomination where everyone is free to find their own path their own truths. Surely some contradiction then? Well, this is what I want to explore today. Initially, primarily, through two poems. One by the early 20th century English poet D.H. Lawrence and later by the twentieth-century, later 20th century American poet Elizabeth Bishop. First then, the poem by D.H. Lawrence. It's entitled, Song of a Man Who Has Come Through. And it's part of a series of love poems. And I'll read it through twice, in fact. Once now and once a bit later, perhaps. Song of a Man Who Has Come Through by D.H. Lawrence. Not I... Not I, but the wind that blows through me. A fine wind is blowing the new direction of time. If only I let it bear me, carry me. If only it carry me. If if only I am sensitive, subtle, oh delicate, a winged gift. If only... Most lovely of all, I yield myself and am borrowed by the fine, fine wind that takes its course through the chaos of the world. Like a fine and exquisite chisel, a wedge blade inserted, if only I am keen and hard, like the sheer tip of a wedge, <coughs> driven, driven by invisible blows... The rock will split. We shall come at the wonder. We shall find the Hesperides. Oh, for the wonder that bubbles into my soul, I would be a good fountain, a good wellhead. Would blur no whisper, spoil no expression. What is the knocking? What is the knocking... At the door at night. It's somebody who wants to do us harm. No, no, no. It is three strange angels. Admit them. Admit them. Song of a Man Who Has Come Through by D.H. Lawrence. (coughs) So, what is this poem about? Well, Lawrence uses a metaphor, that of the wind, to convey a force that seems to, nay does, pulse through him. What is this force? Well, firstly, as I said, this poem appears within a sequence of love poems. Look, we have come through. So I think it's fair to say he's writing about love, the force of love. But I think, too we can interpret it as the artistic force, the creative force. In Lawrence, first of all, and in all of us, potentially. But the key point is it's not from us. Not I, not I, but rather it blows through us. So let me read the poem again. Not I, not I, but the wind that blows through me. A fine wind is blowing the new direction of time. If only I let it bear me, carry me. (coughs) If only it carry me. If only I am sensitive, subtle, oh delicate, a winged gift. If only, most lovely of all, I yield myself and am borrowed by the fine, fine wind that takes its course through the chaos of the world, like a fine and exquisite chisel, a wedge-blade inserted. If only I am keen and hard like the sheer tip of a wedge, driven by invisible blows, the rock will split. We shall come at the wonder. We shall come at the Hesperides. Oh, for the wonder that bubbles into my soul, I would be a good fountain, a good wellhead. Would blur no whisper, spoil no expression. What is the knocking? What is the knocking at the door in the night? It's somebody wants to do us harm. No, no, it is three strange angels. Admit them, admit them. So this force is not from us, but rather blows through us. And I think Lawrence is saying that the great forces in life, of life, are much greater than we are, whether of love or creativity. So what is our role then in relation to this wind, this force? blowing the new direction of time. Our role? To let it carry us. And to do this, we must become sensitive, subtle, delicate. We must yield ourselves to be borrowed by the fine, fine wind making its way through the chaos of the world. Then we can become like a chisel, finally splitting the rock and arriving at the wonder, the Hesperides, Lawrence then changes the metaphor to water. Oh, for the wonder that bubbles into my soul. I would be a good fountain, a good wellhead. He would blur no whisper, spoil no expression. Surely this poet here is speaking of the wonder that inspires creativity. And then another change, a knocking on the door at night. Fear! It's somebody wants to do us harm. But no, our deepest impulse says, it's three strange angels. Admit them. Admit them. And of course the reference here is to the vision Abraham had of the three angels under the trees of Mamre in the book of Genesis. These angels foretold that his wife Sarah, long past childbearing age, would bear another child. So the association is with creativity, fertility, We can also see the strangers at the door as the forces within our unconscious selves that we try to shut out, to repress. And Lawrence is saying, let them into the light. Let them into our conscious minds and hearts. But I think this reference to the Bible, to angels, the forces of the divine, suggests that Lawrence is also saying that the divine itself is one of the great forces that blows through us. And Lawrence seems to be showing us here how we can align ourselves with the deep creative forces of love, of creativity, of the divine. But in order to do so, we must forget ourselves and our own little egos. Not I, not I, but the wind that blows through me. And this is so hard for us, isn't it? It's certainly hard for me. We want to be first. We want to be best. We want our egos to remain in control. But no, we must renounce that me, me, me ego if we are to be carried. And yet, Lawrence points to the paradox because when we let go of ego, when we allow ourselves to be born by greater forces, we in fact express our deepest selves, our truest selves, in love, in creativity, even in revealing divinity. And I like to think that Lawrence gives us a glimpse here of how we can understand the divine, a force we never see but only sense, and sometimes feel and to be truly ourselves to be truly human we must we need to yield to this force to allow ourselves to move in harmony with it that is our highest purpose i think we all carry baggage when we come to a free religion like ours certainly i did childhood images of God as an old man in the sky. Later images, which are perhaps not so different from this, may be of an angry God or a condemning God, certainly God as a being out there. And yet, as Rowan Williams has said, no serious theologian has ever suggested that God is a being out there. 1,600 years ago or more, The great Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo said, if you think you understand God, you do not. Have we too easily allowed ourselves to take literally the metaphors of God, some crude, some more subtle? I know I did, and this prevented me from moving toward belief for a long time, even when I felt the need. So can we live with an understanding of God as mystery, a mysterious force whose reality we can glimpse through metaphor, often poetic metaphor, as brought to us by D. H. Lawrence. If we can then we will have arrived at a concept of God an understanding of the divine similar to that of all the great religions of the world a concept of the other Always beyond us, without form, as the Hindu scriptures say, yet who we strive to live in harmony with, but always through that first step of renouncing the ego, that hardest step of all. And this truth is there in all the great wisdom teachings of the world and in all the great wisdom teachers. In the process of moving beyond ego, we inevitably feel awe and wonder in the face of the great mysteries of life before divine mystery. And this suggests to me that we are called to a practice whereby we express that awe and through which we might begin to live in harmony with the great creative forces of life, with divine force and our practice may well include contemplation meditation or prayer it should equally be expressed through selfless acts of love but many of us i suspect but for many of us i suspect such selflessness can only be achieved through a sustained practice such as prayer or meditation thus i hope for all of us it may seem perfectly valid for our General Assembly object to talk of our purpose as the worship of God. But surely this could apply to any God, including Hindu, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, or Sikh. Well, of course, it could. That's quite true. So let's move on, then, to the second contentious point in our object, the part that states it's our job as Unitarians what may be our job, to uphold the liberal Christian tradition. Why on earth should we do that? And the second poem we're going to hear today is At the Fish Houses by the 20th century American poet Elizabeth Bishop. After hearing it once, I'm going to hand round copies of the poem and it's quite long and you'll hear it again with a copy in front of you. <coughs> First, then, can we listen to At the Fish Houses, read for us by another American poet, Nancy J. Crumbine. At the
2: Fish Houses. Although it is a cold evening... (coughs) Down by one of the fish houses, an old man sits netting, his net in the gloaming almost invisible, a dark purple-brown, and his shuttle worn and polished. The air smells so strong of codfish, it makes one's nose run and one's eyes water. The five fish houses have steeply peaked roofs and narrow, cleated gangplanks, slant up to storerooms in the gables for the wheelbarrows to be pushed up and down. All is silver, the heavy surface of the sea, swelling slowly as if considering spilling over, is opaque. But the silver of the benches, the lobster pots and masts, scattered among the wild, jagged rocks, is is of an apparent translucence, like the small old buildings with an emerald moss, growing on their shoreward walls. The big fish tubs are completely lined with layers of beautiful herring scales, and the wheelbarrows are similarly plastered with creamy, iridescent coats of mail, with small, iridescent flies crawling on them. Up on the little slope behind the houses, set in the sparse, bright sprinkle of grass, is an ancient wooden capstan cracked with two long bleached handles and some melancholy stains like dried blood where the ironwork was rusted. The old man accepts a lucky strike. He was a friend of my grandfather. We, walk, we talk of the decline in the population of the codfish and herring while he waits for a herring boat to come in. There are sequins on his vest and on his thumb. He has scraped the scales, the principal beauty from unnumbered fish with that black old knife, the blade of which is almost worn away. Down at the water's edge, at the place where they haul up the boats, up the long ramp descending into the water, thin silver tree trunks are laid horizontally across the gray stones, down and down at intervals of four or five feet. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, element bearable to no mortal, to fish and to seals, one seal particularly I have seen here evening after evening. He was curious about me. He was interested in music, like me, a believer in total immersion. So I used to sing to him Baptist hymns. (laughs) I also sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He stood up in the water and regarded me steadily, moving his head a little then he would disappear then suddenly emerge almost in the same spot with a sort of shrug as if he were as if it were against his better judgment cold dark deep and absolutely clear the clear gray icy water back behind us the dignified tall firs begin bluish associating with their shadows a million christmas trees stand waiting for christmas The water seems suspended above the rounded gray and blue gray stones. I have seen it over and over, the same sea, the same, slightly, indifferently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones, and then the world. If you should dip your hand in, your wrist would ache immediately. Your bones would begin to ache and your hand would burn as if the water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with a dark gray flame. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, derived from the rocky breasts forever, flowing and drawn, and since our knowledge is historical, flowing. And flown.
1: Thank you, Nancy, and I'll ask you in a moment to read it again. But first, I hope I have enough of them, enough copies for everyone. Perhaps a couple of people could help hand them around so we can do this relatively quickly. Thank you. enough,
2: I may have to ask you to share. Jim, can I just say one word about Just yes. one word. Yes. Um, I, I listened to Elizabeth Bishop reading this online this morning several times, and she prefaced it by saying that it was written about Nova Scotia, the eastern shore of Nova Scotia, just south of Halifax. And I've just recently come from Newfoundland, the eastern shore of Newfoundland, with the, cot, the history, the tra- now tragic history of the codfishes. It's a great gift to be asked to read this poem today. For well, thank, me. thank you, you,
1: Nancy. Well, it's wonderful to have Nancy reading this.
2: Mm.
1: <clears throat> Can I just suggest that once again, you just enjoy it. You enjoy this extraordinary poem. Don't worry too much about what it means. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll have a little time to discuss it uh, among each other, and I'll give you a few pointers to look for. But just enjoy the poem again, but looking at the detail.
2: I should also say I was so honored that Jim asked me until it became clear that he asked me because of my accent. I love you anyway. At the fish houses. Although it is a cold evening down by one of the fish houses, an old man sits netting his net in the gloaming almost invisible, a dark purple brown and his shuttle worn and polished. The air smells so strong of codfish it makes one's nose run and one's eyes water. The five fish houses have steeply peaked roofs, And narrow, cleated gangplanks slant up to storerooms in the gables for the wheelbarrows to be pushed up and down on. All is silver. The heavy surface of the sea, swelling slowly as if considering spilling over, is opaque. But the silver of the benches, the lobster pots and masts, scattered among the wide, jagged rocks, is of an apparent translucence, like the small old buildings with an emerald moss growing on their shoreward walls. The big fish tubs are completely lined with layers of beautiful herring scales, and the wheelbarrows are similarly plastered with creamy, iridescent coats of mail, with small, iridescent flies crawling on them. On the little slope behind the houses, set in the sparse, bright sprinkle of grass, is an ancient wooden capstan, Cracked with two long bleached handles and some melancholy stains like dried blood where the ironwork has rusted. The old man accepts a lucky strike. He was a friend of my grandfather. We talk of the decline in the population of codfish and herring while he waits for a herring boat to come in. There are sequins on his vest and on his thumb. He has scraped the scales, the principal beauty from unnumbered fish with that black old knife, the blade of which is almost worn away.
1: Turn over, please.
2: (laughs) Down at the water's edge, at the place where they haul up the boats, up the long ramp descending into the water, thin silver tree trunks are laid horizontally across the gray stones, down and down at intervals of four or five feet. cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, elemental element bearable to no mortal, to fish and to seals. One seal particularly I've seen here evening after evening. He was curious about me. He was interested in music. Like me, a believer in total immersion. So I used to sing him Baptist hymns. I also sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He stood up in the water and regarded me steadily, moving his head a little. Then he would disappear, then suddenly emerge, almost in the same spot with a sort of shrug, as if it were against his better judgment. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, the clear, gray, icy water. Back behind us, the dignified, tall firs begin, bluish, associating with their shadows, A million Christmas trees stand waiting for Christmas. The water seems suspended above the rounded gray and blue-gray stones. I have seen it over and over, the same sea, the same, slightly, indifferently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones, and then the world. If you should dip your hand in, your wrist would ache immediately. Your bones would begin to ache and your hand would burn as if the water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with a dark gray flame. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be, dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world derived from the rocky breasts forever, flowing and drawn, and since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown.
1: Well, a great thanks to Nancy. It's wonderful to have an American and an American poet reading that magnificent poem. I'd like you just to look at the poem again and perhaps with a partner or one person next to you, two or three of you if it's easier, um, just to discuss two questions. What do you think the sea represents? You will see... It appears quite late, well, about the middle of the poem. But and then, I don't ask you to read the whole poem again. You've heard it twice now and seen it once. But just, what do you think the sea represents? And how is knowledge? She brings in right towards the end. Knowledge. How is it similar to the sea? Well, how might it be? It's a suggestion that knowledge may be. Um, Perhaps, first of all, you could just, with someone else, discuss any reaction you like to the poem, but perhaps focus on that. So let's just have a few minutes doing that. Sorry, perhaps as good practice, one person could, you know, once you get going, one person could give their reaction first without comment, then the next person gives a rea- their reaction. Pa- particularly looking at those two questions What does the C represent? Why and how is it similar to knowledge? Thank (laughs) you. The situation was that the next person got to be a boss. The situation was that 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 was that the situation was that was that the situation was that the situation was that was that the situation was that was that the situation was that was that
2: The situation was that the next person got to The
1: I could ask you to resume your 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 seats, and we'll—I'll actually be talking about what I think the poem means, or some elements of it. So, keep your copies, please, and um, feel free to keep them. I, I don't want them back again, so feel free to keep them, and uh, you know, feel free to look at it while I'm talking about what I think it means. And of course, poems mean many things, and many things to many different people. So um, it's not easy to say what I think it means is what it means. Certainly, uh, uh, particularly as I got something wrong straight away when I said to you that the sea only appears halfway through, and of course that's wrong. Um, All is silver, the heavy surface of the sea, swelling slowly as if considering spilling over. And then a bit later on at the first break, down at the water's edge. And then, of course cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, which she repeats uh, 12 lines or so on, cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear. Um, Well, as I've suggested, I think there's a lot that could be said about this poem and no doubt should be said about it, but I don't have time to remotely do it justice one thing that perhaps Nancy's given a useful early introduction, but, uh, and I'm no expert on Elizabeth Bishop, but I think throughout here there's a feeling, a sense of loss. And Elizabeth Bishop knew brief happiness in this place, in a childhood that was beset by family tragedy and dislocation. And she writes this poem in 1947 after returning to this place on the Nova Scotia coast after many years away. And I chose this poem because it explores our relationship with nature and it suggests a link. It suggests a link between knowledge and the powerful forces of nature in this case, the sea. And it points to a truth about tradition, I think, because knowledge is part of tradition, obviously. Knowledge is an important part of tradition. It points to a truth about tradition, the traditions we inherit and live by, or not. And these traditions are part of knowledge, so that this is an aspect And this is an aspect, sorry, that I'd like to focus on now. I'm not sure that Elizabeth Bishop in this poem gives clear support to any one argument or other about tradition. Rather, it raises for me intriguing questions about knowledge, about tradition, including religious tradition. How does it do this? Firstly, Elizabeth Bishop gives us a picture of the fish houses and the area around this, panning almost with a camera, focusing in and out. Fishing is an industry, a human industry, a human tradition, directly related to the sea. The evidence is everywhere. There's a similar look on sea and on land. All is silver with the fish tubs and wheelbarrows lined with herring scales. The old fisherman she talks to knew her grandfather in this fishing town. He, they talk of the decline of the fish population, perhaps the human population. This is an industry in decline, certainly in this place. Then, as we follow the poet's eye into the sea, down the tree trunks laid horizontally at the water's edge, we are suddenly given a new vision. The sea, the the lines that follow, the sea is cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear. It, the sea, is an element bearable to no mortal, but to fish and seals we sense the alien essence of the sea its otherness and the creatures that live in it well we catch and eat we catch and eat fish but how do we relate to seals the poet describes her somewhat comic attempts to communicate with a seal through singing hymns but the seal is alien other too then a repetition cold dark deep Absolutely clear, the the clear, grey, icy water. The sea swings above the stones, and it seems above the world. It's so cold it would burn your hand, as if, she writes, the water were a transmutation of fire. If you tasted it, it would taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. Then the enigmatic lines, only a suggestion, mind. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, derived from the rocky breasts, forever flowing and drawn. And since our knowledge is historical, flowing. And flown. Why is the sea like how we imagine knowledge to be? She's not stating this with certainty, but this is no throwaway line. Elizabeth Bishop is a poet of great craft. She takes great care and time over her poems, or she did do, as she is. No, no longer with us. The suggestion seems to be, her suggestion seems to be, that knowledge, that is our knowledge, our understanding of the world, including of the other, the mysterious, both out there and within ourselves, all this is knowledge, yet knowledge a hum- is, a, is a human construct which allows humans to understand and interpret the world and themselves. But it can also be seen as something other, a force in its own right, derived from the cold, hard mouth of the world, from its rocky breasts. Knowledge is what is handed on to us. It helps us navigate the world, but we have to keep drawing it. And in that sense, it stands apart from us, and yet it keeps moving, changing, as reality keeps changing. So it is flown and drawn, but more importantly, it is, in, it is always in danger of being left behind. Knowledge is always in danger of being left behind by ever-changing reality. Because knowledge is our response to a changing world, our attempt to make sense of a changing world. So that unlike the sea, knowledge is not only flowing, but also flown, past tense, already out of date, even as it now tries to make sense, even as through it we now try to make sense of a world that is ceaselessly changing. Now, I don't think it's far-fetched to see tradition as very much part of the knowledge she is writing about. The traditions of this particular fishing community in Nova Scotia are intimately painted by Elizabeth Bishop in the first part of this poem. But we also sense that that the reality those traditions are built on is changing, including the fish, the sea, and the mysteries that the sea conceals. So what does all this mean for tradition, including our religious tradition? I gather that Elizabeth Bishop was not religious, so I don't think we can say she's trying to make a particular religious point. But what can we draw from the understanding she gives us? can we draw anything useful? Well, put simply, I'd like to suggest that we can draw two things from this poem relevant to our denomination today. First, that we need to keep in close touch with our traditions so that we continue to be sustained by them. Second, that we keep in close touch with reality ever-changing reality so that we are able to renew, revitalize, and to make a new tradition our tradition. Make it a new for new times. But surely our tradition doesn't just have to be about Christianity or liberal Christianity. Well, I would reply, that's the tradition we have sprung from. But haven't we moved beyond that now? To try to answer this point, I'd like to quote from a little book called Christian Voices in Unitarian Universalism, a chapter entitled In God's House There Are Many Rooms by Scotty McLennan, a UU minister for many years who grew up a mainstream Presbyterian and rejected that. And as a young man, he was keen to move away from Christianity altogether. He spent a summer in India staying with a Hindu Brahmin priest, studying Hinduism as part of his religious quest. And if I can just find the book... So he writes now many years later as a Unitarian Universalist minister of long standing and a Christian one. One of the great surprises of my time in India was that the Hindu priest knew the Bible better than I did. He even kept a copy next to his bed. He also read the Islamic Quran from cover to cover and frequently recited passages the priest seemed just as familiar with Buddhist scriptures. He spoke of many avatars or incarnations of divinity throughout history, including Krishna, Buddha, and Jesus. As I sat cross-legged each day in my white cotton dhoti and kurta, I began to think, maybe this is the way to spiritual maturity, be open to all religious traditions, pick and choose what rings true for me in each of them. Yet the priest kept emphasizing getting on a path, following a discipline, becoming committed to a teacher and a set of teachings. There are many well-marked paths up the spiritual mountain, he would say, and they all reach the top. But you need to follow a path, and you can't be on more than one path at a time. (laughs) At the end of the summer, I decided I wanted to become a Hindu. The morning I told the priest, I was stunned by his response. No, no, he chided. You've missed the point of everything I've taught you. You've grown up as a Christian, and you know a lot about that path. It's the religion of your family and your culture. It's your ethics and your world view. You know almost nothing about Hinduism. Go back and be the best Christian that you can. I was upset. But I don't believe Jesus was any more divine than Krishna or the Buddha, I pleaded. And the Christians I grew up with would condemn you for knowing about Jesus and not accepting him as your only Lord and Saviour. But the priest's response was simple. Then go back and find a way to be an open, non-exclusive Christian, following in Jesus' footsteps yourself, but appreciating others, others' journeys on their paths. The more I could learn about others' paths, he explained, the more I would progress along my own path, and deepen my understanding of it. Those words have remained my marching orders for life, writes Scotty McLennan. And he did precisely that. He went back to the United States, and it was through those instructions that he found the Unitarian Universalist denomination. (coughs) So... um, Yeah, it was his first step towards joining the UU where he became an open, non-exclusive Christian. But I think the words of the Hindu Brahmin priest are a challenge to all of us here today and to our denomination. Of course we are open today to people of all faiths and none. And our religious diversity is, I believe, very positive. I. Uh, uh, Of course we can and should welcome all who share our openness and tolerance and welcome them into our ranks. But I don't think the Brahmin's words about us let us as a denomination off the hook quite so easily. His words you will hear again and again from spiritual leaders of the East. The Dalai Lama was famously asked by an American seeker I want to discover the ultimate reality. Should I become a Buddhist? And the Dalai Lama replied, no, you should become a Christian. I repeat, individuals must be free to choose their path. But what about our denomination? Should we be reconnecting with Christianity? Should we be helping renew this tradition? Should we ourselves be helping renew it? Sadly, in my view, we have moved from this over the past decades at a time when fundamentalism has been on the rise within Christianity a time when our open non-exclusive approach could have been a useful counterbalance could have been part of the mix ah but haven't we often been excluded by Christians from joining them Yes that's true in some parts of Britain but in other parts our unitarian churches and chapels play an absolutely central role in churches together for example and we are founders of Christian Aid and are invited each year to play a part in this this is just one of many examples but what about interfaith dialogue shouldn't we promoting shouldn't we be promoting that involved in that of course we should and we are But we come back to the question, what is our position? What is our faith as a denomination? The words of the Hindu Brahmin priest and of the Dalai Lama do challenge us, both as individuals and as a community. The the Dalai Lama is obviously not saying that no Westerner can be a Buddhist, but he's challenging us. Have you tried your own tradition, even studied it, and I think not just in the past, but in recent times, now even, because that tradition is a living and changing one. I joined the Unitarians ten years ago as an agnostic and a seeker, and after two or three years of welcome exploring, I felt the need for something deeper, perhaps God. I explored Sufism for a while, But then I thought I should try again the Christian tradition. And through Reformation mystics like Racebrook and Boehm, I was able to feel a powerful connection with that Christian core through metaphor and symbol to connect with the ineffable, with the divine. Mysticism has remained central to my exploration of Christianity ever since including 20th century mystics like Evelyn Underhill and Thomas Merton, but also Rumi and the Hindu mystics. We have the freedom to explore and draw from other faith traditions, and that is one of our great strengths. Recently studying spiritual direction, when I was studying spiritual direction with the Anglican Diocese of London on a very ecumenical course, I came together with open-minded Christians from many traditions. I had so much to learn from them. They were like us Unitarians in so many ways, experimenting with faith, with traditions, with ritual, in exciting ways, challenging and changing their traditions. I think all of us would appreciate and benefit from exchanges like these. And we ourselves, as Unitarians and as free Christians, have much to bring to the table. We have much to bring to that table. It's not a question of going back to the past, but of reconnecting with that living and changing tradition. So how can we re-engage with it? Well, our object allows us, I think, to take the first steps, but symbol and metaphor give us ways of moving closer and closer to the center, that center of flux and movement, that heart of our faith and of all faiths. I urge you to think about this in your own situation. Are there ways of connection? And I suggest that we should all think about this, and I hope that you will do so. Thank you.